This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It's important to recognize that January 6th by no means happened out of the blue. It was something that was a long time coming given the dangerous level of divisiveness that was happening across the country and with individuals truly believing that they could not rely on constitutional means to bring about any sort of necessary change. So that was kind of leading up to January 6th. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Strategic challenges from Russia and China, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and the one-year anniversary of January 6th set the stage for the defense and security outlook of 2022. Today, I turn over the microphone to Christine Brazo, the Associate Director of the International Security Program here at CSIS, where she moderates a special conversation with her fellow female associates in the program, Rose Bouchart, Katrina Doxey, Davy Nair, and McKenna Young to discuss the national and international security challenges ahead for the new year. I'm so excited to be back to host the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast to discuss the national security outlook for 2022 with my fabulous CSIS colleagues, Katrina, McKenna, Davy, and Rose. So I'd love to start out by hearing from each of you on what the top national security threat and foreign policy issues are in your area of interest. So Katrina, our transnational threats expert, let's start with you. Thank you, Christine, and really excited to be here today. As a brief introduction, my name is Katrina Doxey. I'm the Associate Director and an Associate Fellow with the Transnational Threats Project, or TNT, at CSIS. TNT focuses on the threat from domestic and international terrorist groups, as well as the irregular warfare threat posed by countries such as Russia, China, and Iran. So thinking about some of the big security threats and foreign policy issues in the TNT wheelhouse that we're facing this year, I think definitely top of mind is the terrorism threat, both in the United States, as we're looking at kind of the continued growth of the threat from white supremacists and militia groups. We're recording this actually on January 6th. So I think that's very much on a lot of people's minds today as we think about the threat that domestic terrorist organizations pose to the American government and to people who live in the United States, especially as folks are targeted based on aspects of their identity, such as race, ethnicity, religion, or gender. There's also a lot of concern about international terrorism, particularly after the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, with fears that Afghanistan will, in the short to medium term, become a terrorist safe haven once again, as well as looking at kind of the proliferation of groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS in some of their more widely distributed affiliate branches, particularly looking uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. So those are a lot of the threats on the terrorist side of things. On the irregular warfare side, we're also watching as state competitors such as Russia continue to employ irregular means, whether it's building pressure at the Ukrainian border or spreading their influence 
across multiple continents through the use of deniable means such as private military companies. Those are all things that will be on the TNT watch list as we move into 2022. Great. Just a, a couple of things to worry about to kick us off, Katrina. Let's go over to Davey. Great. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for having me and really excited to have this conversation with you and Rose and Katrina and McKenna. So I am Davey Nyer. I'm from the Defending Democratic Institutions Project at CSIS. And what we look at is how cyber and cyber-enabled disinformation operations undermine trust in democratic institutions. So for 2022, a big theme for us is going to be resilience. With regard to cyber, you know, there's a lot of nation states, criminal organizations, and, and really just a number of other bad actors that will very likely turn to nefarious cyber activity to compete in the gray zone or signal their cyber capabilities. So it's going to be very important that the United States and our like-minded partners and allies have those resilient systems and processes in place so that our institutions can maintain operations, not if, but unfortunately when a major cyber incident occurs. So identifying both the barriers and opportunities to grow and really innovate towards that greater resilience in the cyber context is going to be something that the DDI team is closely tracking this year, especially given the very tense standoffs happening around the world with a number of great powers with cyber capabilities. And then switching over to the disinformation side of our portfolio, unfortunately, disinformation continues to be this huge issue as foreign and domestic bad actors use disinformation to erode trust between citizens and then erode that trust in democratic institutions. We have been engaged in the project at CSIS looking at how civic education can be reinvigorated as a national security imperative to really grow this societal resilience against these threats. And this is going to be especially important this year as we try to think through how our society can, fingers crossed, somehow emerge from this pandemic in 2022. I am keeping my fingers crossed for that too, Davey. <laughs> Let's go over to McKenna. Thanks so much for having us, Christine. My name is McKenna Young. I'm an associate fellow with the Aerospace Security Project here at CSIS. And we focus our work on space security and civil and commercial space and also air power. So I'll be talking more about the space domain today. There's been a lot going on in space the last couple of years. Namely, space powers are getting much more bold in space, including the new debris creation events like the 2021 November Russian ASAT test, and there's been a huge influx of commercial activity in the domain lately. With so many quick changes, the top threats and policy issues can change pretty rapidly, but in my opinion right now, space situational awareness, SSA, also called space domain awareness or space traffic management, is a top priority. This is the tracking of all objects, including debris that are orbiting in space, and SSA can warn satellite operators of potential collision events. So as more actors launch more objects into space and more debris is created, ensuring our space assets are able to function in a safe environment with little to no worry of unknown collisions should be a top priority. Additionally, creating a set of operating norms will be much more important as new actors enter the domain. For the first 60 years of general space operations, uh, space was dominated by large governments. And now the commercial sector has really taken off and is launching at an unprecedented rate. SpaceX alone launched 900 satellites in 2021, which is a pretty jarring number. So ensuring that all actors have the same operating norms and can trust each other's movements in space will be vital to the domain moving forward. Really interesting. Thank you so much, McKenna. And last but not least, let's go over to Rose. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm an associate fellow with DIG. 
do, or the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group, really looks at the relationship between the Department of Defense and its industrial base. Much of the capacity that the national security space draws on to address the challenges facing the US exists formally outside the department and creating and maintaining strong ties there is a really crucial national security tool. I focus on emerging technologies, which can be both a threat and a tool. Technologies can provide fantastic new ways to solve problems, but can also create new challenges. So far in my shorter time with CSIS than many of my colleagues, I've been able to look at both biosecurity and remotely crewed systems, which are two areas where we're just seeing some really exciting things. Great. Thank you, Rose. So I'd love to go back to Katrina and start out with you. And as you mentioned, we are recording this on January 6th. But last year when we recorded this episode, we recorded just after January 6th happened and the shocking events that unfolded at the U.S. Capitol. When we spoke last, you had the hope that the Biden administration would direct its focus to creating policies that would address the domestic threat landscape. How would you grade their efforts so far? Thanks, Christine. So I think I'm going to cheat on this question a little bit and not give them a direct grade, but that's because I think the efforts are still ongoing. And I will say that I think it's good that the efforts are still ongoing. So I'll start with kind of a a recap of what we've seen from the government over the past year, and then talk a little bit about where we can expect this to go as we continue to move forward. So first, just on the reactionary front to January 6th, I think that we need to acknowledge from the start, and I I do think that this in itself deserves a high mark if we're grading them. The FBI has been conducting the largest federal investigation in U.S. history, looking into the individuals who are involved in the Capitol insurrection. There are hundreds of cases that are open, but I think the broader question to move into then is what policies we've seen from the government to prevent something like that or something like the other domestic terrorist attacks and plots we've seen in our history, including in recent years, from happening again. Just chronologically, the first big thing that we saw last year was the focus within the Department of Defense on initially doing a counter-extremism stand-down and then launching this broad investigation of extremism in the ranks. And so that has been ongoing over the course of the past year, And actually, just before Christmas, just a few weeks ago, the department did publicly release both a report that was created for Secretary Austin that was the result of the working group's efforts over the past year, as well as a new memorandum outlining the department's revised policies on extremist activity. And so what these efforts have produced so far have really focused on definitions, defining what we mean by extremist activity, what that looks like now in an age where we're dealing with social media really spreading disinformation, spreading extremist thought, and how that can be monitored and regulated within the military. They've issued a set of recommendations to the secretary that include various tasks, including increasing the vetting of individuals as they are joining the military and also during just security clearance reviews, as well as more broadly expanding our ability to study extremism in the ranks to collaborate with other departments like the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Veterans Affairs to have collaborative efforts to really prevent individuals who are currently or who have formerly served from being susceptible to extremist activity. I think the 
biggest thing that I would comment on on the Department of Defense's efforts there is that while there's been a tremendous amount of effort going into studying this problem and looking at concrete steps we can take, I worry that they haven't done enough messaging, particularly to individuals in the military, on why this is necessary. I think that the department needs to, as part of its next steps, really engage in conversations with troops and really understanding how these efforts are also designed to help protect the services, to protect the government, and are ultimately in-service members' best interests as they're being targeted by some extremist organizations and really wanting to preserve the cohesion of units, the safety of our service members, as well as more broadly trying to disrupt extremism in the United States. The other big event that we saw last year from the administration was that last June, the Biden administration released the first ever national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. So this was the culmination of a 100-day review of efforts across U.S. government agencies to respond to domestic extremism. President Biden had ordered this in January of 2021 as part of the conversations in the wake of January 6th. And so this is really... I think a turning point in how we think about counterterrorism in the United States, and particularly a turning point after 20 years of focusing on international terrorism following 9-11, because this marked the first time that we were really thinking on this scale about directing attention and resources to domestic threats. Really notably, the final section of the strategy focuses on broader societal contributors to domestic terrorism and really calls out the fact that there are forces such as racism and bigotry in this country that have structurally contributed to the way that domestic terrorism evolves, the way that these ideologies have evolved in the country. It focuses on the way that things like gun violence, disinformation, and the lack of civic education and civic engagement have really led into the situation that we're facing now as we look at the domestic terrorist threat. And so this section, most of all, I think is very aspirational in the strategy in terms of looking broadly and ideologically at the things that we need to better about our society in order to counter domestic terrorism in the long term. But I think that as much as we would all love to wave the magic wand to prevent future terrorist attacks from happening in the United States to reverse radicalization. I think that this does need to be a really slow and thoughtful process, especially as we're defining any kind of new legal definitions, as people are considering new legal statutes, which notably have not been a part of the new domestic terrorism strategy. There are no new laws, new designations. None of that has been introduced. And I think that that's especially important just given the history in the United States of some efforts to counter the sort of political violence being used disproportionately against already marginalized communities, including communities of color and the LGBTQ community. And the fact that as we continue to define laws that are really based around political violence and identities, we need to make sure that we're building them in such a way that preserves Americans' civil rights, rights to free speech, and building things in such a way that they could not 
in the future, even if created with the best of intentions, be used against some of those groups that are already marginalized and have already historically been disproportionately affected by overreach of law enforcement. That was a fascinating answer, Katrina. And it sounds like, you know, we've made some progress, but we still have uh, plenty of ways to go. Davey, I'd love to bring you in here. Can you walk us through the state of America's democracy before January 6th and on January 6th and kind of what you see as the current state of our democracy one year after January 6th? Sure. So I can quickly say before and on January 6th, unfortunately, trust in institutions was at an all-time low. There was various COVID-related disruptions and concerns about how we would move forward uh, after the pandemic. There was a lot of hyperpolarization that was made worse by disinformation and misinformation that was, of course, spread by domestic actors and foreign actors alike. And I say all of that just because it's important to recognize that January 6th by no means happened out of the blue. It was something that was a long time coming, given the dangerous level of divisiveness that was happening across the country, and with individuals truly believing that they could not rely on constitutional means to bring about any sort of necessary change. So that was kind of leading up to January 6th. On January 6th, and shortly after, there was this small silver lining, if you want to call it that. There was some hope that Americans across the country were extremely concerned by what they were seeing uh, transpire on that day. And, and they were ready to do the work and kind of come together and strengthen our democracy. But then, you know, we turn to the conversations one year later, and, and it's a slightly different picture. I do want to just quickly start by talking about the actual security failures, uh, what that meant for levels of trust on January 6th and what are those conversations that are happening one year later. And Katrina expertly laid out a lot of those amazing points. So I just wanted to emphasize that those conversations are happening and progress is being made. And you have a lot of local DC as well as federal leaders very thoughtfully thinking through these issues. You know, you have things like debates over who controls the DC National Guard and like who can order them to respond to something like a January 6th type of event. Just this week, you had US Capitol Police coming out with a report that detailed a number of changes that they've already been implementing or are thinking of implementing to address some of the concerns that stemmed from last year. So, you know, as, as a few people have noted, we, we are recording this on the morning of January 6th. So I expect that there might be more related announcements and updates uh, coming in the coming days. So it's important to make sure that this is an ongoing conversation one year later, especially because the inability to secure the Capitol during such a critical moment of the election process really did undermine people's confidence in the relevant federal and local law enforcement agencies, as well as the individuals that were tasked with leading them. So that's the first thing. The bigger issue, though, one year later, is that I would argue that we're in a more precarious place today than we were on January 6th with regard to societal resilience. That sense of unity that I was talking about shortly after January 6th was very short-lived. People actually don't even agree on what happened, let alone what lessons, if any, should be learned coming out of January 6th. And, and this has really led to delays in identifying and enacting strong initiatives like those related to civics and media literacy that can encourage civil discourse and empower those individuals to become responsible agents of change via constitutional means. So with this in mind, it's going to be important to be measured in how we talk about these threats to our democracy. On the one hand, you don't want to be an alarmist and insinuate that we can never have a trusted election or peaceful transition of power again. Some of those conversations have been swirling around in recent weeks, and then we kind of want to try to avoid those. 
But on the other hand, you know, you have people like Attorney General Merrick Garland, who came out yesterday with a with a speech and, and was essentially saying that if the U.S. doesn't investigate and address this with sufficient seriousness, we do run a very serious risk of normalizing the actions that we saw carried out at the Capitol last year. Thanks so much, Davey. It's really helpful. You know, it's it's easy to be a pessimist in today's day and age with things going on like that, but also having good leaders is very helpful. I'd like to shift to a bit of a more global outlook in 2022 and go to our space expert, McKenna. You know, arguably America's biggest threats right now are China and Russia. And as they continue to make headlines with their irresponsible behavior in space, you mentioned the recent Russian anti-satellite ASAT missile test, and a similar incident happened with China in May of 2021. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit more about that? And are there any policies in place that condone this behavior? Yeah, thank you so much. I'd be happy to. This is a great question and something that many of us in the space community have strong opinions about. Before I get into that, I want to just, you know, caveat that with so many, frankly, terrifying threats that my colleagues are speaking about today that we can kind of tangentially see and see their impact. I know it can be a bit harder to speak of irresponsible behavior in space and think that that's on the same scale. But we do depend on space for so many aspects of our daily lives that if these irresponsible behaviors continue and continue to grow more bold, it could be really dangerous for and really change our way of life. These ASAP missile tests that you mentioned create a lot of debris. Some are big enough that they can be tracked with the SSA that I mentioned earlier, but some are so small that they can't be tracked. Objects orbit so quickly in space that a small piece of debris could seriously damage or completely you know, take out a satellite. And these satellites we depend on for so much of our lives. Uh, so they can be really dangerous and really disruptive if something would go, you know, really wrong or, or one of these uh, threats really hits close to home. So some in the space community have called for a ban on these ASAT weapons and this testing. It's difficult because we, we know now and we have known for a very long time that the U.S., China and Russia have this capability and there's simply not a need to create more debris and risk harm to others in a similar orbit to show off this capability. You know, we're very well aware that these three countries have been able to do this for a very long time. India joined. They're the fourth country to demonstrate this capability. They've done their first and only ASAT test in 2019. And while it didn't create a huge amount of debris, similar to the tests that Russia and China have in the past, it still got some a bit of outrage, particularly from the U.S., because it did create some debris that was in the orbit you know, of the ISS and of other really important satellites. So... As these events come up, you know, people always suggest it. Test ban treaty gets a lot of attention after an event, but typically the reaction kind of slows down as we get further away from the event and doesn't gain too much global traction. But an ASAT test ban treaty is something that a lot of those in the space community really advocate for because, you know, we know that these countries are capable of threatening a satellite in space and, and taking it out. And you don't need to prove that over and over again with risk to, to other satellites in space. We really have one main treaty in kind of military space, and that's called the Outer Space Treaty, which was spurred actually by the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles in the 50s, uh, which can you know reach targets in space. It's a vital document and covers a very large majority of the issues in space, but the landscape of actors and threats and objects has changed pretty drastically in the last 55 years. It dictates that outer space will be free for exploration by any state. Uh, no state can claim sovereignty by occupation or otherwise in space. And most importantly, no state can place nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction 
in orbit or on celestial bodies or station them anywhere in outer space, which is incredibly important. 111 countries are parties to this treaty and 23 others are signatories. And these are incredibly important ground rules to have in space. But as I said, a lot has changed in the last 55 years. Space weapons, especially those that can you know, and are used frequently that we see as we do these space threat assessments, I have evolved much further than just placing nuclear weapons in space. Some of the most used attacks are electronic and cyber, which it's possible that they would leave no trace, which is a huge difference from the detonation of a nuclear bomb. So because these threats have evolved so much, we're at a point where some nations actually have different definitions of what a space weapon is. Uh, This makes it pretty difficult to sign agreements on banning particular weapons or actions when you can't agree on the definition of a weapon or an action. So there are some great ground rules, but in this, you know, really dynamic landscape of space, it is getting much more difficult to, you know, reach a conclusion. That's great. And pulling a little bit on what you said, McKenna, in the beginning that, you know, there's so many major issues happening globally every single day that this might be in the news cycle quickly and then kind of go away. Do you feel like the Biden-Harris administration and the United Nations are prioritizing this frequently enough or really only when major things happen? That's a great question. You know, I think it's difficult to say. I'll I'll take them kind of separately. Uh, The United Nations has really meaningful space dialogue that continues throughout the years and evolves and keeps pushing the conversation forward. But because there are so many nations involved in space, and you know, particularly when you're getting the US, China, and Russia to all come together and agree on terms, that can be quite difficult. So it's very hard to, you know, finalize some of these agreements or even, you know, take two steps in the right direction. Uh, but the UN hosts, again, really meaningful dialogue that hopefully will continue to push this conversation and, and make some ground. As far as the Biden-Harris administration goes, they've been a bit a bit silent on space, to be honest, for their first year. Uh, that changed a bit in December of 2021. Uh, Vice President Harris held her first meeting of the National Space Council on December 1st, and uh, she did say that establishing rules and norms for responsible behavior in space was a priority. She didn't give much detail after that, so it's hard to know, you know what first steps the administration would be taking. In December, they also released the U.S. Space Priorities Framework document, which is a six-page document outlining why space is so important and, you know, a couple of main bullet points that we're going to focus on going forward, one of which is that the U.S. will lead in strengthening global governance of space activities. Again, it's a great sentiment. Hard to know exactly what the administration plans on you know, focusing on to for, to move this conversation forward, but it is a good sign that it's being mentioned in the document. And though it doesn't really touch military actions such as ASAT tests, NASA has been really, this has been something that NASA has been focusing on a lot is getting countries to come together and sign on to, they have Artemis Accords for their new Artemis program that is taking countries to the moon and hopefully Mars after that. Uh, So they're hoping that as nations sign on to join them in this Artemis program, they will sign on to these accords, which are 11 principles for a safe, peaceful, and a prosperous future in space. As of October 2021, 13 countries have signed on to these principles, and NASA hopes to be that, that leader in this coalition of nations to operate sustainably in civil space. So there is a lot of stuff, you know, in the first beginning stages of happening, but I think that 
you know, it'll be really important this next year to hold the administration accountable and ensure that, you know, these threats in space are being uh, documented and, and taken care of. Sounds like we have a lot to uh, keep our eyes peeled for in the next year, McKenna. Thank you so much. Rose, I'd love to bring you in here. I'd like to switch up a little bit to something we haven't talked much about on the podcast yet today, which is COVID-19. And, you know, that continues to be one of the top global issues and will likely be at the top of candidates' agendas this fall. And you've actually been doing some fascinating research on biosecurity and bioeconomy. Can you talk a bit about biosecurity and bioeconomy and how your research has intersected with COVID-19? So Diggs' work in this space really began even before I came on board with a a brief published over the summer by our senior fellow and former director, Andrew Hunter. He did a lot of important work in defining what biosecurity is. And his first brief in this series defined biosecurity as an integrated approach to assessing and managing risks posed by biological agents and biotechnology to human, animal, and plant life and health. This is a broader definition than many individual agencies use, but it encompasses more of the space of a whole rather than a a particular agency's particular mission focus. One of the exciting new developments in this space is the Apollo program. The Apollo program was announced in January 2021 and then further rolled out in September of 2021. And it is in some ways what it sounds like. The Apollo program aims to mirror the ambition of the moon landing, but in biosecurity, and to really build our core capabilities, strengthen our public health system, and build in some situational awareness so that we can track emerging pathogens before they become another pandemic. Our brief this fall looked at three different case studies that speak to many of the same challenges drawn from different governments' responses to the COVID-19 pandemic across the Asia Pacific. So for example, we did a deep dive on diagnostics, data management, and laboratory research in South Korea, New Zealand, and China, respectively, looking at some of the lessons learned that we might be able to draw from those governments' responses to different aspects of the COVID-19 pandemics in their own backyard. And we really came away with some great lessons learned, uh, which are in uh, the tail end of our brief. But two of them in particular are that lab research is really sort of a peacetime activity. One of the things that has really helped our pandemic response efforts has been the ability to develop a vaccine very, very rapidly, certainly much more rapidly than we saw in previous pandemics. The building blocks of that vaccine response and vaccine development were put in place by lab research and development across years, if not decades, before the outbreak of of COVID-19. We found that funding um, in this space really should a fairly steady drumbeat so that when the next pandemic hits, we are able to draw on technological advances made during sort of quote-unquote pandemic peacetime, where maybe epidemiology is less of a focus of national conversation, but where important advances are able to be made. Um, Another lesson learned is that it's really important to, to sort of create a known system for the bioeconomy to plug into and sort of create known known opportunities for the broader bioeconomy to to act as sort of surge capacity for the US government. That is really fascinating stuff, Rose. Thank you so much. Well, I could sit here and talk to all of you for hours, but I believe we are are at our time and need to wrap up. It's been such an insightful conversation. I feel very lucky to work with all of you and learn from you. And I think it would be great if we could end with one sentence from each of you on what you're actually hopeful for in 2022, since we've talked a lot about what might scare us this year. So I'm going to go first to Davey. 
Sure, Christine. Thank you. And yeah, I should say, despite all the gloomy things I outlined in my earlier answer about the state of societal resilience today, I really do want to end by saying that there is so much good work happening within the different agencies across the private sector and really throughout the larger civil society, specifically aiming to encourage constructive civil discourse and reform and hold institutions accountable and really strengthen our overall democracy. And even if it's hard to sometimes measure all the good that's happening, those efforts are underway now. So it really is just a matter of elevating and scaling, better supporting those initiatives this year um, so that they can be of greater impact. Sorry, I know I, I cheated and went over a sentence, but really all the good work happening in the civic space is what's giving me hope for 2022. That's great, Davey. McKenna? Thank you again so much for having us, Christine. And I think I might also cheat and throw out an extra sentence to my answer. But I'm hopeful for the Biden-Harris administration to follow on to their December announcements in space and really see what progress they can make when space is able to be a bit more of a priority for them. Uh, Additionally, NASA just launched the James Webb Space Telescope, and I'm hopeful that the excitement from this mission can help to refocus the excitement of space and reinforce why space exploration and why the development of space is so important. We need more space geeks, McKenna, right? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right, Rose. I think as we look to the year ahead, I'm really hopeful that emerging technology can keep all of us, including our workers, safer as in the years to come. That's great. And last but not least, Katrina. Yeah, I think as I sort of alluded to in my answers before, good policy isn't made overnight. But I'm really hopeful that in the coming year, the Biden-Harris administration will continue to build off of the strong research and goal setting that it's engaged in over the past year on the subject of domestic extremism to really start building more concrete policies and mechanisms to help make the American public more resilient to disinformation and to extremist ideologies. Katrina, I think that's a great sentiment to end on. You know, slow but steady wins the race, and I'm hopeful that we see that across the board this year. Well, thanks again for all of you for joining us, and thank you for tuning in and listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I look forward to talking to you all again in 2023. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hey, Smart Women, Smart Power listeners. My name is Caitlin Johnson, and I host a podcast called Tech Unmanned, where we elevate women's voices in the intersection of emerging technologies and national security policy. We talk about things like artificial intelligence, quantum, biotechnology, and space. Check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts or at csis.org slash tech unmanned.